This is the Nomad Futurist Podcast, a podcast about the evolution of technology, society, and transformation. Connect with us, share your thoughts with us at nomadfuturist.com. Let's get this started. Here are Phil and Nabil. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Nomad Futurist. This is Nabil Mahmoud, your host from Kona, Hawaii. This is your co-host, Philip Collins from Montclair, New Jersey. And this is your guest today, Kevin Kent from Columbus, Ohio. Kevin, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. Let's start with your background. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, well, this is uh, a lot to tell, I guess. Um, I uh, started as a student in Ohio State in 1984, and I had the... um, uh, really good decision-making that I studied uh, music education and had a minor in phys ed and science ed. So it seemed I picked the two programs that were going to be cut the quickest um, if there were financial problems in a school district. Also, it was quite an odd uh, odd pairing to have music and phys ed. But um, uh, as I got out into the world and started teaching, I had the realization that uh, if I ever wanted to have a family the salaries that teachers make uh, were not very good. Uh, I managed to land a corporate training job with um, a national bank uh, based here in Columbus. And uh, the seven years that I was there, I was introduced uh, to data centers and I had not heard of a data center before. I had no idea what it was, but uh, I was absolutely amazed by the technology that uh, was going into that room. And I remember very specifically a facilities person was was with us and he said, I want to let you know, we have 250 kilowatts of power coming into this room. I was like, wow. Now, if you say anything less than 20 megawatts, it's like, well, that's a small data center. But uh, that's how how times have changed. But um, uh, I had some really good mentors uh, at, at this bank, and it allowed me to, to gain some of the knowledge I needed and to start getting certifications. I got every Microsoft certification uh, back in the 90s that you could imagine that uh, opened the door that uh, I was able to get a job with Quest Communications and uh, was able to work in the data center there. And uh, that opened the door nine years later to work at the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. And I worked there uh, 19 years and I retired in August of uh, 2019. And then I did a one-year contract to make sure the folks that were going to be managing and taking care of the data center were in good hands. But um, something really interesting happened in those 19 years. And it's both good and bad, but um, I began to get very bored with my job. Now, if you're managing a data center and you're bored, that's a really good thing. Because if you're not bored, that means all hell is breaking loose, that you're probably updating your resume and sending out as many copies to um, everyone as you can. But uh, I I also had uh, the really good uh, fortune to have some great managers and people to work with at Ohio State. And they allowed me to earn a lot of opportunities. And I started getting more certifications. Uh, I got my CDCP. And uh, once I got that, they're like, well, you know, we trust you a little bit more. We're going to start sending you to some conferences. And um, I was really lucky. I got to uh, attend about any data center conference I could find. 
mind. And I would sit there for some reason I was drawn to the mechanical and electrical or the facilities part, I think of data centers. And uh, the reason being is uh, I, I absolutely love nature. I'm a hiker camper. I've ridden my motorcycle all over North America. Uh, and during the time of these conferences and riding my bike all over North America, I physically over the course of five years, seven years, 10 years, I can see the, the, um, the climate and the landscape in the United States starting to change drastically. Uh, I would drive through these massive floods on Route 80 from Columbus uh, to San Francisco and see thousands and thousands of uh, acres of farmland in Iowa, Nebraska that uh, couldn't plant and couldn't grow because of these rain bombs and all these climate disasters that we're seeing. And uh, I started to be able to connect the dots that data centers, they are a part of the climate crisis and the climate emergency that we have. They're a very small portion of that. And um, I, I would hear these brilliant, brilliant speakers say you can reduce your cooling energy by, you know, 30 or 40 percent and airflow management and all these tips and tricks. And I'll be honest, I sat there for a year and then the second year thinking, this is total BS. There's no way that I can go in and spend very little money, plug some holes, change my set points, monitor my rack inlet temperatures and make any type of significant difference. So I got it in my mind that I was going to take a year of my life and I was going to prove every one of these people dead wrong and I was gonna call them out for their BS. And something really strange happened. I absolutely, 100%, I proved them right. And I started to make some little gains uh, with the data center in Ohio State without spending any money and started to do some, um, what was considered by Ohio State, some controversial things where like, hey, we have a 18 inches of a drop ceiling. Why don't we use that as a return plenum? Let's see if we can direct some of the heat back to the cooling systems and how can we separate our supply and return air and how can we become more efficient? How can we measure uh, the total amount of power we're using and then figure out where is it inefficient and how can we tighten that up? And when we reduce that, what are we doing with our carbon footprint? And let's just not focus on the amount of electricity we're using. Let's look at scope one, two, and three. Where are we buying things from? What is the transport? What are we doing with our equipment and material uh, once it becomes outdated and old? Are we being good environmental stewards? And um, I had enough success with Ohio State that it led me into uh, the global consultancy service that I have and training all over uh, the world. And uh, I've been incredibly fortunate. I've worked in data centers uh, on every continent with the exception of Antarctica. I'm trying to find a data center there. I need to get there. Uh, but uh, it, it's really interesting that the techniques and the methodologies, how we build data centers, where we build data centers, how we manage them, uh, just all of the little intricacies uh, very much fascinated me. And by following science, basic science, and um, even common sense, it allows you to really tighten things up, save significant amount of money, uh, and become better environmental stewards. And um, that is a really important thing this day and age. We've seen significant changes in our weather patterns. Uh, I know it snowed in Hawaii this year. Uh, it always does. It always does. I didn't think it ever snowed in Hawaii. Uh, and uh, I noticed in um, 
in Tokyo. I was in uh, Japan in 1987, and I was there in the springtime, and I was able to see the cherry blossoms. But I was there in early May, and uh, they bloomed in March this year, and it was the earliest in 1,200 years is how long they've been tracking. It was the earliest that those trees ever bloomed just due to the increase uh, in temperatures and the you know the heat rise that the planet has seen. So I know that's kind of like the drive-through of a, a little bit about myself, but uh, you know whatever questions you have or direction you want to go with that, feel free. Oh, you you just opened up a can of worms. This is going to be an exciting <laughs> one. So yes, it does snow in Hawaii. We've got 12 out of 14 climate zones where I live. What what really caught my attention earlier this year was the fact that it snowed in Dallas, Fort Worth, Texas. Yes. And the whole community came to a halt. But before we get into any of that, how did you end up picking music? And was 250 kilowatts the turning point for you to get into the data center? I mean, come on, that, that's, yeah. that's quite magical. How, how, how did it all happen? And what did you want to do yeah. when, you, when, when you were a kid? Yeah. Uh, so I think the reason I picked music is the arts and culture were always a really big part of my family. Uh, on my mom's side of the family, her mother played the organ at every mass at St. Nicholas Church in Zanesville, Ohio. Uh, her grandfather was a celloist. Um, my mother was a dancer. Uh, my father thought that he was a singer, but it was really he was really not anything close to that. But uh, music was a big part of um, of my childhood and growing up. And the school system I was in, the uh, music program was uh, outstanding. Our athletics were horrendous. If we would win one or two games at, in any sport throughout a year, it was considered uh, uh, to be a groundbreaking and uh, you know an exciting fabulous year. But uh, that, that's just where I felt I could make a difference. And that's really what I wanted to do. You asked me, what did I, what did I want to do when I was a kid? Uh, I had uh, great parents, um, the youngest of five. I had wonderful siblings that uh, uh, sometimes taught me by force rather than uh, by action. But uh, I always felt this need that I want to give back. And um, as much as I enjoyed music and, uh, you know, I excelled, I took private lessons on a couple of diff different instruments. And uh, I found that as a means that I could become a student at Ohio State. And that was uh, a place I loved. Uh, we'd grow up watching football, Ohio State football and basketball games. It was a family affair. It still is. And uh, I just thought, saw that as the path of least resistance and where I could have the opportunity to uh, be a positive influence and make a difference in a lot of people's lives. So just so, so that everybody knows, I have seen Kevin gave out more Ohio State ball caps than yes. anybody that I know. <laughs> so never, ever, ever mention Michigan. Yeah, no, it's OK. I actually love Michigan. They've been a, a great rival the last 12 years. They've been fantastic. Um, the, you know, what's, what's, what's incredible is what, what we've tried to suggest on this podcast since we started it is that the, the data center, the critical infrastructure industry is, is accessible in, to such a broad demographic of people um, that it's, it's kind of unique in that regard. You know, to get into the higher levels of the finance world, you know, you might need an MBA or, or whatever, you know, you need to have like really, really good with pivot tables and spreadsheets and all that nonsense. Um, to be in the legal world, you know, you have to go through a regimented thing. You know, you have to go to law school, take the LSATs. You know, there's a, there's a whole um, set of things that you need to do to enter that profession. With our world, what's unique about it is someone that has a 
background as, you know, with a physical education music background can essentially become a climate scientist, um, you know, and that's and that's what's so amazing. And, and in large part, I think it has to do with, you know, how early we are in the evolution of our world. Um, and, and I wonder um, if you can speak to that. I mean, the fact that you were able to kind of learn our world through experience and not through, I know we talked about some of the certifications and we talk, we yeah. can talk about whether those certifications are valuable, you know, to, to, to have from a knowledge base or valuable to get you the opportunity to be exposed to the other things. And I think, you know, I probably fall on the latter point than on, on the former. Um, but how much of being able to evolve experientially and and following kind of where your natural proclivities took you um, helped shape who you are? Yeah, the the um, I always felt like I was in the the right place at the right time, and that I received uh, breaks and uh, opportunities. But uh, the reality is, there was not a line of people begging to work in a data center. Uh, when I started to work in data centers, we traditionally had the um, uh, average room temperature was probably around 64 to 68 degrees. Uh, humidity levels were very, very low. It wasn't a comfortable place to be in. It's noisy. Uh, I'm a people person. If you're you know, racking uh, 100 servers and running network connections and uh, all of the activities that you would see from an operational level in a data center, that took me away from the parts that I uh, that I liked that, that felt natural to me. But um, uh, something that happens in that is you do have a customer base. Ohio State, they were our doctors, our research uh, analysts, uh, people bringing huge grants to the university, and part of those grants would go to technology. And then also just your own internal customers uh, within your own IT department that have needs and demands that um, that go through that data center. But what where it got real for me is uh, clinical technology began to grow. And you start to get the realization, um, you know, downtime, nobody wants downtime, right? Uh, downtime recently has been described as latency, that if you're trying to connect to your bank or social media and there's slowness, that that's really now considered downtime. And there's uh, shouldn't be any reasons unless there's a fire that uh, you would lose connectivity to your main data center. But the what happened at Ohio State is this, hey, if our data center goes down, that there will be patients who cannot be admitted, surgeries that can't happen, medications that cannot be dispensed. Eventually, the medications could get dispensed. And uh, now this is taking on a more personal level where you, you can start interacting with your clients, with the doctors. You can go to the hospitals and you can see the technology working. And now you don't feel um, so disconnected. And um, uh, the experience I had in that area at Ohio State, I think if I had been anywhere else, I probably would not have wanted to continue working in data centers and continue to learn more. Uh, as far as the certifications, it to me is is very much you know like a college degree. Yes, I I proved that I can memorize information and regurgitate it, you know, in multiple choice or however the format would be in there. But right now, that seems to be the foot in the door. And it seems to be like, okay, you know, you've got these certifications, you really don't have a whole lot of experience. What that tells me, if I'm hiring somebody that is a CDCP or uh, has a, a ton of DCD certifications, that tells me that 
I don't have to be as worried that they're going to, you know, lean on the EPO button uh, inadvertently, you know, you know, trip the dry fire suppression system, and they're not going to take my power network down. So I'm like, I have a trust level where I know they understand the the uh, caution and the basic premise of how the facility runs. And and honestly, every data center is a little bit different, and the nuances are a bit different, and those, you know, can be learned. Um, but uh, if you were to look at my LinkedIn profile, I bet I have 30 to 35 uh, DCD certifications. I don't know. I, I'm not going to tell you that that means I'm an, uh, an expert in all those areas and that every one of those that I passed that I know more than anybody. No, that's not true at all. It means I have a, a, a basic knowledge of and a basic understanding, but that's what we build upon. And it's a lot easier to build upon that with somebody if they have some sort of foundation rather than they know nothing. If you're uh, if you're going to hire someone, would you value the certifications or the experience? Um, so Is, I mean, it's I, probably not an apples to apples, but you know what I mean. Yeah, if I was personally hiring somebody, the you know the certifications would be okay. That's nice, but to me, it's all about uh, the person. Do they have the wherewithal? Do they have the work ethic? Um, are they are they a sloppy person? Uh, you know, I, I don't want to go into a data center and see network cords hanging everywhere. Some cords aren't labeled. Some are. Something's plugged in. Something isn't. Are they tripping, stumbling? Or uh, I, I mean, in the data center, I look for somebody who appears uh, to have uh, neat, meticulous. Uh, skills and somebody who is able to to communicate and say, hey, I just finished doing this. Will you please go check this? Here's uh, the procedures that I follow. Please check, make sure this is right. Uh, and someone who is willing to learn, but sort of has that cautious uh, demeanor about them. Well, that's music to my ears, right? So basically, the the whole idea behind the data center being which a makes perfect group. sense because he was a music major. He just <laughs> yeah, did it. Totally. He combined both worlds. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, for, for those of uh, the listeners over here who don't know what an EPO is, it's actually the red, bright red button that's typically sticking out of the wall. So just make sure never, ever, ever, ever press that button uh, unless you're asked to. Em emergency power off. You know, you yes. never want that. No. All right. So, Kevin, you, you had my attention when we started talking about climate change. Yeah. Okay. 225 kilowatts to now averaging megawatts of computing power. What are some of the major changes you've seen over the last five to 10 years of computing and data center build outs? Yeah, I mean, size and speed um, are the first things that come to mind. Um, but the size of data centers, the hyperscales, the edge facilities, the advent of the cloud, uh, enterprise data centers, they're going away. No, they're not going away. Oh, they're coming back. The clouds, we're migrating to the cloud. No, we're trying to come back. Um, but but really what's changed uh, and driven all of those, I think, is demand. There is, um, you know, when I'm traveling across the world, I want to be able to see my bank account. I want to be able to talk to my family. I want to be able to pull up a map and figure out, am I going the right way or am I going going down a road that's going to end up getting me uh, into trouble. Um, I, I love to use this equivalent of, of Google searches, and this is not any intent to throw shade at Google, but uh, we have a saying amongst my friends, if someone will say, hey, how do you get here? Or what is this? Can you explain that? And the, the um, phrase we have is it's the corner of Google in 2021, because you can find anything on Google. But if you were to look at um, 
the amount of power that one Google search uses, just one single search, it's, you know, it's nothing. It's, I wouldn't even call it a blip on the map. But if you were to take all Google searches for one month, it's nearly four million kilowatt hours. Uh, you could take a hundred watt light bulb and you could power it with those kilowatt hours for several years, like 10 to 15 years, if not more. So we start to get the understanding that one of the things that has changed is the demand. So are data centers energy gluttons? Yes, absolutely. Are we energy gluttons because uh, we don't care and that we just want to take all the power we can get. No, we have to meet the demand, not only of our businesses, but our end users. And right now, what we are doing and how we've conducted business all of uh, 2020 and into 2021, uh, it's relying on technologies and this will pass through several data centers. It will take power, space, and cooling. So the, the demand has, uh, has been the really big thing, but uh, the innovation and technology that grows through data centers from electrical to the mechanical to virtualization of you know, servers, storage switches, networks, and now we're seeing power being virtualized where we can be very granular and not have eight out of every 10 servers sitting there all day long pulling power when they're maybe only running for 20 minutes. And it's giving us the ability to be much more granular, to be much more efficient, uh, and to meet the demand without uh, causing further harm to the planet. You know, I think the um, uh, what's what's amazing about the the uh, ability to introduce efficiency into a data center is it's one of those rare places where economics and climate activism kind of align. Um, so, for the most part, where you know these companies uh, value um, in, in uh, uh, instituting efficiency, and 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 I guess the question at the end of this is is my thesis correct? Um, is that to operate a data center, whether you're an enterprise or you're you're a large hyperscaler, um, the largest cost associated with operating that data center is power, um, the usage of that power. So the more efficiency you can introduce to that environment, particularly using some of the metrics you you uh, stipulated, you know, using the um, the drop ceiling as as a return plenum, or putting in cold dial containment, or hot dial containment, or 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 whatever. Um, uh, that actually redounds to the bottom line. Um, and it's one of those rare places where um, that also has a benefit to, you know, carbon footprint and, 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 you know, the environmental impact of data centers in general. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting because um, power and, uh, and cooling, those are the about 40% of a data center's cost traditionally. And m- most of the, the last 10 years, enterprises and colos, they're not so interested in talking about efficiency or uh, getting it out of the recommended envelope of ASHRAE rack inlet temperatures and into the allowable and increasing temperatures, especially colos. Uh, Colos will tell you, hey, if I have a potential client coming in and they feel this like, hey, it's really warm in here, that 10 years ago, that was a negative. And uh, we've seen that trend change now where they expect it to be a little warmer. They're asking them, how are you getting your power? Is it source renewal? What are you doing? Do you have zero waste? And and we're becoming more more educated. But um, what has happened in data centers is our staffs have whittled down, whittled down, whittled down. We used to have a ton of people on the staff at Ohio State, and then it went down to half, then a fourth, and then really there's just one. And um, when you're the only person 
uh, or there's just a few of you who are managing a large facility, you start to get a priority list. And really, it's like, what are the things that could cause downtime? Why? Well, for me, if there was downtime, I knew I was going to get fired and I would probably never work in another data center. So you start to prioritize. And, uh, you know, thermal compliance, I'm like, I could have cared less. I don't care if it's 50 degrees in here. That's one thing I don't have to worry about. I can check that off my list. And we would tack that up as, hey, that's the cost of doing business. If I'm a colo, I can pass that cost off, uh, you know, to my clients or to the folks that are in there. But what we are seeing happening is in the UK, they pledged to be uh, carbon neutral or zero carbon emissions by 2030. That's eight years. How are they going to do that? I mean, how is that possibly going to happen? Uh, one of the ways we know that can happen is if we're sourcing renewable energy. We look at where data centers are built. Um, we don't build them really anywhere near where our power is coming from. And we talk about power, the site of generation, whether it's uh, traditionally uh, generated or if it's renewables. We know in the U.S. it's average of a 7% loss from HV, from high voltage down to low voltage. So if I'm getting 20 megawatts of power and I'm at minimum losing 7% because I'm so far from where that generation is, I'm taking a lot more than 20 megawatts of power, significantly more. Um, but what we've seen in the Nordic when we talk about efficiency is, is this great idea. Let's build our data centers close to where the power is being generated and let's build them where we can use the free air where we're not having to spend money on power to compress air and we can go 98% of the time where we're not compressing air and we see a huge, huge reduction uh, in the amount of money and the amount of power we're using and hence the carbon footprint drops. Uh, the last three or four years have been great years for the, the type of business I do because data centers are now getting pressure to, hey, what's going on? You, what do you mean you're only using 40% of your cooling capacity and you want two more 30 ton units? I mean, I don't understand. You want a water plant? Uh, and water is another one. We're actually now finally starting to look at how much water are we using? Why is this so out of control? And how can we get away from having no water whatsoever? Uh, and if you look in the US, and I, I can't tell you the numbers off the top of my head, if you look at the number in the US uh, of gallons per day, week, month, and year, the data centers used for cooling, it is astronomical and it is not sustainable. That water is not going to be there forever. And the definition of sustainable is we can repeat this business over and over and don't have to worry about running out of resources. So yes, we're seeing data centers paying much more attention towards efficiency. Technology is helping uh, the use of AI, the uh, implementation of AI. And again, I'm sitting at these conferences eight years ago and I'm hearing about Google. They put uh, AI in their most efficient data center. They basically flip it on and they see 40% reduction. They're like, this can't be right. They turn it off, check some things, flip it back on and it's exactly right. And it's like driving a Tesla. I would love to own a couple of Teslas. They're so expensive now, I can't justify spending the money on that. So I'm sitting, listening uh, in this conference about this new AI product. And it's like the rich gets richer. How am I ever going to get the money for Ohio State to put something like this in their data center so we can save 40%? Well, things evolve, technology changes, more people are using it. And one of the best uh, new technologies I've seen in data centers is machine learning. And, uh, you know, machine learning and AI, I believe machine learning, we can say is a subset of AI. AI, if we're telling it, hey, we want you to 
you know, pick out every picture of a dog that you see. And we send them thousands of pictures of dog and we throw a cat in there. AI is going to figure out that's not a dog. It's a cat. If we did the same thing with machine learning, they would be dog, 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 dog. And I don't know what that is. I've stopped. So the machine learning, it, it only knows what we tell it. But the machine learning application in uh, mechanical and electrical environments is absolutely amazing. Very low cost returns of 38 to the 42 percent. And we're seeing data centers who felt, felt, hey, we're out of you know power, space and cooling. We're going to have to build new facilities. And they're able to tap into this machine learning and find out we have 68 percent stranded capacity. And now we know where it is and now we can free it up. And that is a level of efficiency four or five years ago that the commoners that we didn't know. And now that's become very common uh, and it's becoming a great asset to data centers of all sizes. Uh, I would not be surprised if somebody pulled out your dog, 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 dog thing and and uh, sampled it on uh, some yeah. album that's going to come out. I think um, you might be more famous after this than than you gave yourself credit for. You know, one of the things that uh, that I'd be remiss if I didn't mention is that as data centers evolve towards leveraging these more efficient um, uh, resources, other things come in that are less efficient. You know, as you evolve, you pull things, you know, uh, together. So, you know, it, it, you, you think about the least efficient le- use of a data center today. And the first thing that pops in my head is cryptocurrency. Um, so uh, do you have a feeling, uh, I assume you're not hugely bullish on it because you love the environment and those two things uh, aren't, uh, don't, don't necessarily go together well, but uh, do you have a sense of how that impacts overall, um, you know, the, the utilization or, or, or overall efficiency um, of, uh, of data center usage on the planet? Yeah, I honestly, I don't know enough where I would be comfortable to speak about it. Um, uh, it's something I know I need to learn more about, but I have shied away from that and focused on what we would consider the traditional data centers. But seems like is, Kevin needs a cryptocurrency certification. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, there are some companies uh, here in the U.S. that uh, are addressing that. I think Saluna in New York uh, would be one of them, the way they design and manage data centers. Um, I'm familiar with them because I do a lot of work in Africa. They have this massive uh, wind farm in the Dakar Desert in Morocco, and they're trying to address the levels of efficiency in that process, and they're trying to increase that and make that sustainable. And, you know, that's the most uh, that I know about it, and I would love to sit here and BS with you, but that doesn't do me or you any good. Uh, That's why everybody listens for the BS. Damn it. I think a part of the discussion here also is the fact that, yeah, sure, all of this needs to be done at the facilities level, but it also needs to be done at the physical hardware, right? So your computing is essential. Now, the computing loads have changed. The four factors have you know, changed over the years. What we used to do, uh, you know, one to two kilowatts uh, a rack space and an eight square foot form factor is now in the 30 to 40 kilowatt, and it's just going to accelerate thereafter. Uh, so I would say the the manufacturers of the computing infrastructure needs to change as well, whereby, you know, power and cooling demands are, are going to change at some point in time. Have you seen an increase, like I, I see that you are a part of AFCOM as well. Have you seen a significant increase and uh, in, in, in the temperature thresholds from 64 degrees to, to a higher number? And do you expect that number to go uh, further higher uh, in, in, in what would be more normal for average human being? 
Yeah, uh, what's interesting in this process, and this is a Lord Calvin statement, and I'm going to butcher it and just give you my version of it. But basically, what Lord Calvin said is, you cannot manage what you do not measure. And what I've seen a, a lot in the last five to 10 years is because our staffs, we mentioned this, have been dwindled down. Uh, some of the automation 10 years ago that's uh, available now, we just couldn't use that. But uh, it has to start with uh, measuring what you have. And you hit the nail on the head. Um, the density of racks. I know I can have racks that are 20 or 30 kilowatts. There are basic guidelines to physics, to cooling, that tells me that uh, for every one ton of cooling I have, I can mitigate 3.5, roughly 3.5 kilowatts of heat. Well, if I'm not measuring, and if I don't know that I have X amount of racks that uh, it requires cooling from this system, and this is what I have, this is what it takes, it's impossible for me uh, to begin to raise temperature. So, uh, you know, DSIM is, uh, you know, you, you'll hear both good and bad, but anything you can do to measure. Um, uh, I've given clients magnetic temperature strips and ASHRAE standards at, you know, top of the rack, middle of the rack, bottom of the rack, infrared guns taking 10 minutes uh, if you have nothing else and going through and shooting and recording temperatures. And then once people get a handle on, oh, okay, this is where I'm at on my rack inlet temperatures. And, you know, I'm at 54 degrees at the bottom. I'm, I potentially could have a greater risk from condensation uh, than I could from thermal overload. And uh, being in tune with ASHRAE standards, uh, knowing the classes A1, 2, A3, A4, understanding uh, the recommended and the allowable allowances. And, uh, you know, every environment's going to be a little bit different. But the key is to find that sweet spot where uh, you are in the middle to the upper portion of ASHRAE standards, but knowing your, your runoff time, knowing if I have a thermal issue, what is my time to beat before this whole facility shuts down? How much time do I have to mitigate this issue? So as people are able to, to measure and manage, they've become much more comfortable with uh, how they control their environments. And yes, ASHRAE has done a great job um, working with uh, the IT equipment manufacturers and understanding those needs and providing us some um, guidelines to where we can safely live. And uh, if you give me a rule set and you say, if you stay in this rule set, you're never going to have a problem. Um, this is what ASHRAE is telling us. It makes it a little bit less risky. And uh, when I can go to the CIO at Ohio State and say, hey, our set points are at 68, I believe we can safely get up to 80. But we're going to try two degrees at a time. Why? Uh, two degrees generally. It takes two degrees at least to affect the uh, cycle time on compressors, fan speed, all that you know, business, but we'll measure, we'll track, we'll record, we'll listen for fan speeds, we're automating, we'll do all of this in a little bit at a time and letting it sit and bake for a day, a week, uh, and then a little bit more, it builds confidence uh, and it allows uh, someone who is a decision maker financially uh, to understand that you're still living in and having a much healthier environment. It's not going to cause you downtime. And uh, just knowing where you are and being within guidelines, it's made it a much, much easier decision when it, we increase temperatures. So in this case, knowledge is less power. <laughs> yeah, very good. Yeah, or if you start using <laughs> blockchain platform or Ethereum, you don't need any cooling, right? right. So is Ashray right. really thinking about uh, what uh, and how blockchain is going to redefine computing of tomorrow with the quantum computing? Uh, are you guys 
having those conversations because you don't need that high intense cooling infrastructure to keep those environments uh, down yeah. to the thresholds that we currently have. Yeah, uh, I I can't tell you that I know they they are. I'm not part of those conversations. I'm certain, knowing Ashray, that they are. But um, all everything you mentioned in, in the direction that computing is heading, there's um, much work and research going on. USC is doing a, an incredible project uh, right now with quantum com, uh, quantum computing. But the realization that Ashray has is Ohio State's data center, the colos that we have here in Columbus are hyperscalers. Now, maybe not the hyperscalers. Scalers, there is uh, there will be a significant number of data centers that still operate fairly similar to what they do today, five, ten, and fifteen years down the road, and that uh, those guidelines are staying in place. But believe it or not, I think uh, in our traditional data centers, um, and this is just a guess, I would bet that less than half of our traditional data centers uh, are within thermal compliance compared to ASHRAE guidelines. Uh, and I mean, that's just a guess and it's a fairly educated hunch, but um, there's still a lot of work to be done there. There really is. With all of your travels around the globe, I think you said that you have pretty much had every continent other than one. Uh, where are you seeing or where have you seen a significant growth as far as data, data centers are concerned? And what are some of yeah. the verticals that, that have made that impact? Yeah, I, I think um, you talk about the APAC region. Uh, it's really, really growing tremendously. I don't understand building these huge facilities in Singapore. I don't know if you've been to Singapore, but um, uh, the last time I was there, it was 98. It was like Miami. And I, I asked the hotel clerk, I said, is this summertime for you guys? And he was confused. He said, why are you asking? Asking. I'm like, it's just so hot and humid. And he said, every day is summer here in Singapore. But uh, I, I think about um, the difficulties they have cooling, uh, but uh, Digital Realty and uh, several of the other larger builders, that they're making big uh, headway in the APAC region. But uh, the continent of Africa, uh, South Africa has uh, Terraco, uh, Liquid Telcom. They are just absolutely exploding. They're building 10, 20, 30 megawatt facilities. Uh, the African Data Center Association, they're working very hard to have um, ISOs and standards that are environmentally friendly. And if you think about Africa, the entire continent, uh, if there's ever a place where uh, renewable energies make sense, it's uh, that continent. It's constantly, it's warm, the sun's shining, the wind is blowing, it, it makes perfect sense. But it's been estimated that there will be more data centers built in the next 10 years uh, on the continent of Africa than anywhere else in the world. Uh, when I was there for the live conference two years ago in the virtual event this past year, their theme was, let's keep Africa's data in Africa. They don't want to send their data to Spain or to Europe or you know wherever they're sending it. And then when they need to recall that data, having it come back. And we're seeing the, the large companies, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, they're investing a lot of money in infrastructure as well as facilities. But this takes us back to the point where I think uh, for the, the reason for these podcasts, you talk about a shortage of uh, data center employees and a need going literally through the roof at a skyrocket's pace uh, is Africa. And uh, there's a lot being done to try and develop uh, quality staff there. I know a lot of that is where they're transplanting people 
so those people can help train the next generation. But, uh, you know, my money is in and on the continent of Africa for these next 10 years. And again, you know, the, the, the ability for uh, people to, um, you know, gain that practical experience, to, to take the experience that they've had in their lives and apply it to, you know, the microcosm that is, you know, a data center environment. It's not, you don't have to be, you know, a scientist in order to explore some of these things. It's a lot of these, the, the practical notions of working in a room and realizing that, you know, you don't want hot air going where cold air is supposed to be. And, you know, it's just a lot of it, you know, to us, maybe it's matter of fact, because we've been in these, these environments, but once you experience it, it's a lot of these kind of, you know, matter of fact, pragmatic, practical solutions that, you know, um, like you said earlier, have not been implemented by, you know, a, a significant portion of the facilities that exist uh, on the planet. It can be, uh, it can be very impactful. Yeah, I've seen this great divide in um, not just U.S. data centers, but typically enterprise and, and even colo facilities where facilities folks who are brilliant, they understand the mechanical and electrical environment. And then your IT folks where it's this battle, uh, you know, war of the worlds between them. Uh, but I've seen um, uh, colo specifically train their facilities people in, in the IT world and vice versa. And it's very important uh, that they be able to work together. And in Africa, I believe that's the approach they're taking where there is a, and I know you guys will agree with this, there is a huge difference between a, a skilled and qualified electrician and HVAC person compared to a skilled and qualified data center electrician and HVAC person. And on that, the right side, the qualified uh, uh, electrician and HVAC data center qualified HVAC and electrician, those are the people we want in our facilities. They care about rack inlet temperatures, return air temperatures, where you're measuring, where you're monitoring. They care about stranded capacity in your electrical environment. And they understand how they can prevent that from happening. Or when it does happen, how do you undo that? How do you gain that capacity back? And um, that's, that's an area that concerns me a lot is for 20 years, I've seen this facilities I battle. And sometimes a few years, it gets better, then it goes back. But uh, that's an area where there needs to be significant progress so we can move forward to quantum computing and uh, uh, blockchain and all the other newer technologies that we're talking about uh, will allow us to transfer into that if we can all work together. But right now, it's always a challenge. Well, and I think that's why, you know, the, the, and, and we touch on this in, in, in many of the episodes, you know, kind of the old school mentality of having a set of staff, no matter what element of, you know, your business they're in, that are, you know, completely compartmentalized and not allowed to understand the relationship between what they're doing to the other elements of, of the business is uh, it, it's just it's it's wrong. I mean, the, the way you need to do it, and the way as, as just as an employee, you, you um, make yourself more valuable is to try to take a more holistic approach. And I think it also creates a more valuable, you know, uh, experience from an, an employee standpoint. Like, what 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 better feeling is there um, than to know that what you're doing and how what you're doing is is being leveraged by other elements of the business or by the customers, et cetera? And if we opened up those, you know, compartmentalized areas, um, and and you can apply to any vertical, you can apply to any business. 
Um, and the data center business, you know, most most uh, acutely, obviously, for the purposes of our conversation, it will redound in such significant benefits um, to to the overall business, both from you know from a cultural standpoint, from a productivity standpoint, and from a bottom line standpoint. Um, and I'm sure you would agree with that. Yeah, yeah. I had this uh, conversation more than once with Ohio State, and I was able to use doctors, nurses, anesthesiologists as an example. We were we were talking about well, generalists. We kind of want everybody to know just a little bit about everything. And the the uh, example I used, if if you were have needed to have heart surgery, you wouldn't want to go to a kidney doctor for heart surgery. You want this surgeon because of the special skill set they have. But once you're inside the operating room, the most important person in there is the anesthesiologist. That's who's keeping you alive. Are you telling me the anesthesiologist isn't intimate with the procedure that that, that doctor is going to do, that the nurse's assistants and everyone else that's in there, they all know the process. They all know what's happening. They know where their part fits in. They know how they meld together. And if you silo all of those off, people are going to die. They're not going to make it out of the operating room. And uh, for that example resonated well at Ohio State. And it's the realization of what you were saying. Uh, We have to have understanding holistically of this facility. This is what's happening in here. This is the purpose for this facility. These are the things that can make it go wrong quickly. These are the things that can make it run well. And when people have that, they work wonderfully together. It becomes a very easy job. So very well said. I think a part of it is also understanding the implications, right? So earlier in the conversation, you had mentioned that just one single research over a period of a month is 4 million kilowatt hour. And whether you're an end user uh, or an application developer to a facilities manager or facility, you know, electrician or mechanical guy, all of it needs to actually work and be in sync. I mean, that's that's really music, right? That everybody's got to... Work together as a team. Now let's switch gears just 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 for a second over here. So you talked briefly about machine learning. You talked about artificial intelligence. How has that been accepted? Are we as data center folks are we ready to eat our own dog food for the products and services that we are supporting? Yeah, it's um it's really interesting to see how this is is being accepted. Uh, I think people, when they hear about machine learning, let's just talk about machine learning because that is the most widely and easily easy to purchase and easy to implement. Um, Automatically, data center people think DSIM. Uh, I did uh, done a handful of DSIM solutions. Uh, The last one was at Ohio State. I literally ran thousands and thousands of feet of RS-48 conduit. You're dealing with BACnet, Modbus, SNMP, uh, getting expansion chassis and web cards. And it was uh, it was a very painful process, but you can also imagine incredibly expensive. Uh, DSIM is very, very expensive, but you know it gives you some insight that you normally wouldn't have. Uh, the machine learning products that I see, these are plug and play, they're wireless. Uh, they're uh, no downtime. They're very uh, unintrusive to install. And the price tag on them is a third of what we would see for a machine learning application. And the ROI that uh, from very large colos, uh, 
folks like Digital Realty rolling out to their data centers uh, on down to enterprises, uh, they're going to be less than a year. Uh, just on cooling energy savings alone. Uh, then when we talk about freeing up uh, stranded capacity, uh, the ROI increases, gets even higher, and, and enables a data center to get better uh, efficiency. So once people sit down and look at and understand not only what it is and what it isn't, but how it works, and then, oh, that's it only costs that much, then it becomes a no-brainer. Is there is there some concern when you go into a company and try to introduce some of those uh, processes and, and particularly, you know, an enterprise that has, um, you know, more of a, a legacy staff that has been there for, for some time and maintains this kind of institutional knowledge base? Do you find some kind of pushback from staff that think, you know, that that this new uh, newer technology that is designed to automate a significant portion of how they spend their day to day is going to, you know, impact their livelihood. So you see resistance from the very people that should be the most on board with wanting the data center to run uh, optimally. How do you how do you tackle that if, if what I'm saying is even remotely true? Yeah, no, you, you've literally hit the nail on the head with one of the bigger problems with trying to introduce and help data centers implement this. And really what it comes down down to is, yes, when I was at Ohio State, was I concerned about AI, robotics, machine learning could potentially somewhere down the line replace me? Absolutely. I think that is a, a, a normal concern and it is a normal fear, but uh, what the machine learning products do, and it's facilities people that are, are usually worried the most, but uh, when we're able to sit down and really talk with them and show what it does and explain to them, listen, we're not taking away from you. We're actually giving you a ton more control of your environment. You're going to have insights into things that you've never had before. And one of the most appealing things for facilities people is predictive analytics, machine learning. Literally after five to seven days, it will start patterning and understanding what's going on, why it's called machine learning in that environment. It will see anomalies, uh, perhaps a spike in power drop, things that we would never see that we wouldn't even know was happening. And now I have predictive analytics that in a time of COVID, I know 60 days I, you know, beforehand that I'm going to have an issue with something. Well, now trying to schedule uh, you know, a vendor to come in and fix it or uh, finding the appropriate staff that can meet them there when we're trying to socially distant, it, it becomes a no-brainer. But um, knowledge in this case is a really good thing. And uh, fear is not. Uh, the fear is real and it's there. But when uh, you can have somebody sit down and look through actually what it is doing and that they will have tons more control uh, and in turn, it, it takes a lot of the concerns out about, well, these are the things that could cause me to lose my job. Well, those go away. You never have to worry about those again. Right. And if you get if you if you embrace those things, then you're making yourself part of the solution as opposed to part of the problem. Or you could just move to Africa. Yeah, right. So, uh, but you know, the thing about machine learning, it's not going to make changes for you. It's going to say, based on the data we're seeing from day to day and learning your environment, we recommend you replace these floor tiles, you shut this unit off, you raise these set points. You still have the full control of whether you decide to do that or not. Uh, but uh, having analytics, which I think we all believe in analytics and we know we can trust that, uh, it takes a, a good deal of the fear away. Yep. Well, you got to know what you're going to try to fix. Um, how has COVID impacted the industry over the last year and a half? Well, n number one, it's been capacity. Um, 
when uh, we went into lockdown. And uh, I, I think we talked about this. You and I were both at DCD London um, and uh, we, we weren't even thinking about COVID, but we were already, we're talking, I think with Kevin Brown uh, about uh, how we can have microgrids and how we can uh, work more like this rather than uh, in person, but nobody knew what we were headed for. We had no idea as well as we are uh, about planning for disasters and having plans in place. So when a disaster hits that our business continuity doesn't skip a beat, nobody whatsoever was planned for this. So in Ohio State, we go from having a VPN system that uh, is used to maybe, I don't know, 20, 2,500 connections uh, at a time to now we're looking at 15 to 20,000. And the, the network team, at Ohio State, I mean, they worked around the clock to compete uh, to increase that capacity. So that that wasn't like an anomaly. Like, ooh, it was just Ohio State. So increasing capacity and availability uh, for everyone was completely different, and it was done ad hoc. There wasn't money budgeted, there wasn't space or people, but uh, we still made it happen. Uh, and and also the, uh, the the lights out theory of data centers that cracks me up. I've been in data centers where they have operators going in there every hour, you know, doing foot foot uh, patrol, which isn't a bad thing if that's what they choose to do, but they turn lights out when they leave. So they claim they have a lights out data center, which to me is kind of funny. Um, but um, being able to leverage uh, the DSIM uh, utilities that maybe we have in place and the machine learning that we have in place uh, and being able to stay ahead of the curve and being able to plan better for uh, maintenance, for uh, having the predictive analytics to say there is a problem because it was never a concern about, um, hey, we can have this operator go in and meet this vendor. Now it is, hey, who has uh, someone with a compromised immune system at home? Who has a newborn? Who, who themselves have a compromised immune system? All right, what's going on with our vendors? What about them? Who do they have that they can send in? We never ever had those problems before. Those were things we never had to think about. Uh, but uh, I, I think the, the capacity, the remote management, using technology in our favor, to prevent us and keep us from having to uh, go into a place where maybe we could compromise our own health and safety. And uh, now we're learning this. We might not ever need to go back in to the data center on a day-to-day -day basis. We're working really well. We're managing remotely. We're using technology in our favor. And yes, we'll still always have the need uh, when we're recycling equipment. Uh, you know, if we have to have new, uh, a new power distribution unit put in, if there's maintenance on a crack unit, they'll always need to have, not always, but in our future, near future, we'll always need to have somebody go in there. But uh, I think we're learning. We don't need people in there 24 by seven. So, Kevin, I know you don't have the magic ball, uh, no one of us do, but based on your experiences and what you have been able to accomplish in your career, what do you think are the next step? Uh, what do you think are the things that we should be considering over the next year to three? Uh, I think you mentioned this earlier uh, when we talk about uh, how the IT equipment is being built. We talk about quantum computing. Um, and we, we talk of really what we need to look at is where are we spending the most money and where what processes do we have that are the most harmful or not sustainable is really the word uh, we should be using. So design and build of data centers, uh, all of the facilities in Ash, Ashburn, Virginia, in that area, they're there because it makes financial sense from cost of power. Uh, land, tax abatements, it makes sense to be there. But we, we really have to start looking at um, 
where we're building our facilities, uh, climate-wise, how close are they to power? And uh, as far as renewable energy, it is a huge topic now in the US. Uh, it has been globally for quite some time. In 2020, I believe the exact amount was 260 gigawatts of new renewable energy was uh, introduced in 2020. That's a, a huge step in the right direction, but um, we, we, this isn't something we've talked about. I really firmly believe in power grids and self-generation of power, uh, keeping your connectivity to the traditional grid, um, I've done a bit of work with the United Nations Data Center in Valencia, Spain. They um, basically built their own generic Tesla power wall. They have solar panels everywhere. If you did a Google Earth of United Nations Data Center, Valencia, Spain, you could not even imagine the solar panels that they have there. They are now at the point where we're going to see switch data centers here in the U.S. in a few years. They're calling the their Spain's largest service provider, and they're like, listen, we're, we're generating our own power. We have these long-term energy storage batteries that they're great. They're full. If we didn't have sun for the next five years, we could pull power from these batteries. We've got about, I don't know, a megawatt of power we want to give back. And uh, Spain's largest service provider is like, what? You want to do what? Well, well, how much per kilowatt hour? No, we just want to give it to you. Just take it. We don't want it to go to waste. Uh, and I, I think the data centers are are already considering how can we do that how can we be a, a true sustainable model from you know the type of power we use to the type of computing equipment how we're uh, processing and uh, what are we doing with this equipment when it's done but energy as a service i think that is going to be a, a eye-opening market for data centers the decentralized uh, energy is uh, is um, you know, a really, really interesting way to, to you know, not only um, benefit the climate, um, but add, you know, all sorts of resilience um, and, and removing the, uh, the reliance on, you know, a single point of failure. You have one power station go out and then all of a sudden, you know, you have what happened in Texas happen. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and it wasn't pretty. Um, as we bring this thing to a close, uh, you know, you have a you have a fairly. Um, you have a significant career, again, that was built from, um, you know, beginnings where I don't think if somebody asked you when you graduated college in Ohio, uh, what you'd be doing in, in 25 or 30 years, I, I don't think, you know, uh, climate engineer or efficiency engineer to, uh, you know, large complex computing environments uh, would have been on the tip of your tongue. If, if you had to say something to the younger folks, the people out there that are just trying to determine where to go in their careers and how they can get involved, maybe they, you know, haven't been, uh, um, you know, uh, geeks their entire lives and playing with computers all day and, and they've heard about this industry, but but they don't know. Is there something that you can share with that generation that you think would be valuable, what you've learned, et cetera? Yeah, I think the most important thing is to, to keep an open mind. Um, you know, I would have never said or guessed I would be working in a data center. I have two brothers that graduated from Case Western with uh, degrees in computer science. Uh, God love my mom. She'd say, Jeff and Sean got the brains, you and Terry got the looks. I'm like, woohoo for me. Um, but uh, having an open mind, because the I think the, the vision that a lot of people outside of technology have about data centers is not accurate. And um, figure out what is important to you, you know, as a person. I don't know how you do that in high school. I think 16, 17 years old to try and decide what you want to do the rest of your life is almost an impossible decision. But um, uh, keep an open mind. 
uh, know what is important to you and find people that you value uh, that hopefully are in this industry and talk to them, learn from them, understand the things that they've gone through, the growth that they've had, and uh, allow them to help you map out uh, a plan for whatever it is you want to do. Kevin, thank you very much. This has been wonderful. Thank you for taking the time to join us today. Yeah, I really appreciate talking with you guys. Very much an honor for me to be here. And uh, hopefully I look forward to seeing you guys in person again very soon. Absolutely. This has been great. Nothing lasts forever. Markets will come back. Currencies will rebound. Businesses will go on. And we'll all move on. That could happen next week, next month, or next year. I'm confident that those who prepare rather than panic will come out of this stronger. Thank you for joining us. This has been brought to you by Nomad Futurist. Check us online at nomadfuturist.com.